Philosophy. Descartes. Debate. The Mepropod. 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 The awesomest discussion podcast in the history of the human species. Oh, yeah! Let me tell you of a little girl with an old man emu. He's got a beak and feathers and things, but the poor old fella ain't got no wings. Aren't you jealous of the wedge-tailed eagle? I'm better to da 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 Well, the eagle's flying round and round to keep my two feet firmly on the ground. Now, I can't fly, but I'm telling you, I could run the pants of a kangaroo. But I don't He can't fly, but I'm telling you, he can run the pants of a kangaroo. All right, in that case, welcome to the Mep Report number 140, the even number 140, September 21st, 2015, in the year of our Lord, etc., etc. What's up, everybody? Did it. Hello, people. We made it. Yep, we made it he to said, 140. They said we'd never make it this far. Is, is there Except any, that. like, is there any, like, uh, one, is 140, like, some significant milestone in some world, or is it, like, is that, is that a milestone? Well, there's not really a, a wedding anniversary built around getting 140 <laughs> years, you know. Given that you think it'd be a larger industry, but in the somehow. Harry Potter universe. It's, uh, 20 years beyond a significant biblical age for me. I know. I'm sure, I'm sure some biblical figure had a 140th anniversary. It's like the Plague of Locusts anniversary or something. So. <laughs> we'll all get each other locusts with as much... As many locusts as Mapcoin can buy, I will send to you soon. So I like don't it. open the I mail think, when there's small children around. No. I think on average we do about ten shows a year these right. days. So I would yeah. say that a hundred, but like every tenth show is a milestone as we go around the sun. That's fair. Yeah, that's that seems reasonable. I actually um I heard today on uh, sports radio. This is the first time I've actually laughed out loud at someone who was attempting to be funny on sports radio in I don't know how long. Uh, and it was because the guy was talking about how um, the uh, I'm trying to think what it was. I think it was the the Jets offense without. Oh, no, it was the it was the Cowboys offense without Tony Romo, who was just injured last night, of course, because he's on my fantasy team. So, of course, he's out for eight weeks. But anyway, that the Cowboys offense without him was post apocalyptic. And he's like, they should just put a plague of locusts in a jersey and just throw the football back to the plague of locusts, which will then try to complete the pass. Which I found very, very funny, and I imagine most of the audience was like, what? But I, for some reason, <laughs> I found the idea of a plague of locusts being a quarterback for a team being... Uh, oh, no, I know what it was. It's like after Jay Cutler goes down, everyone hates Jay Cutler for the Bears until they see that the guy after him is basically the plague of locusts in a jersey. So mm. I found that a tremendously amusing uh, thing that I was surprised. But I give him credit. Maybe they're starting to stretch out a little bit, and it's not just... You know, vaguely, slightly racist jokes about um, athletes that sports radio engages in now. That's so. uh, that's uh, quite remarkable because this week um, there was a uh, well-regarded interview between uh, Ed Snowden and Neil deGrasse Tyson over some secret remote communication. Yeah, uh, and I'm reporting this all secondhanded because I've only seen reviews of it and stuff. Um, well, that's the world you live in now, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. you can't do anything firsthand as right. an experience. Everything is a secondary Everything has source. to be through a secondary filter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, however, in that discussion, there was, uh, according to my friend, a discussion about the difference between grasshoppers and locusts, um, which is basically a locust is a grasshopper just in a wildly overcrowded situation. 
and that causes epigenetic changes in the grasshopper such that they become these like extremely aggressive, virulent creatures, and it's all just and they're really necessity. good at karate. Then yes, well, I thought <laughs> the grasshoppers are. Yeah, no. I, <laughs> Stop analyzing it, Russ. Yes. Well, was that praying mantis? I think no, it's praying mantis. <laughs> um, but yeah, ultimately, like it, it is a logical uh, utilitarian purpose why they become locusts because resources have become scarce. They're all overcrowded, and so they have to go and consume resources as fast as they can for the survival of the, the whatever the, the swarm. And so I think, I don't know who made this comparison, because this is secondhand, but presumably Ed Snowden, because it seems like his kind of point of view, he was arguing that we as humans are currently living, we used to be grasshoppers, and now uh, as a society we are locusts, and that um, sort of sums up why we're this sort of ulti-consumerist, exploitative species, is because of uh, population density and what's, what's the changes that it's like brought it. on us. Makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> so we're now locusts. I'm trying to think about like what other are there other creatures who went through similar changes? Like, or were there other times at which our sort of lack of connection to each other made us uh, solitary creatures? Like, you know, like black widow spiders that don't hang out with each other until they mate, and then one of them kills the other, and then they're alone again. Like, I'm curious about what the previous state was. Well, yeah. Like, and the movie's like arachnophobia. It's never just one spider. It's always like massive hordes of spiders. Right, which is just not the way it is. It should be locusts. Freaking out. Yeah. I mean, although the, I guess the opposite of this would be, or no, maybe it's similar, it would be ants. You know how when ants um, try to traverse a body of water, they'll make like a giant ball of ants such that they just, the ones on the outside are constantly drowning, but the ones on the inside are kept safe and warm. And mm -hmm. so they kind of sacrifice for each other, which is sort of a nicer version of the same thing. I like that. It's the ant ball theory. Actually, one of my uh, short stories that I did not too long ago kind of played off on that idea a little bit um, about these constituent insects forming into one larger insect. Um, that and, and the larger insect has the same shape as the constituent insects. So it's kind of a, kind of a vaguely communist insect, I guess, in, in theory, you know, from, from the many one. But, so, but I, I had, you know, I knew a little bit about um, the sort of sacrificial part of it. But, but it's interesting. I, I, I had never thought about locusts, grasshoppers turning into locusts because of resources. And somehow that makes us into locusts now. Except for those of us who don't live right next to each other and don't necessarily have that same feeling. And so I don't know what we are. Is there room for more than one different kind of insect? Can you be a locust but also have, like, uh, praying mantises or, you know, slime, well. slime molds? Like things like that. I mean, as a as a social commentator, I like to think that we are uh, bringing the, the grasshopper point of view to the locusts, and just making them assess that every once in a while. <laughs> so, yeah, so and right we got listened to about as much as you would expect. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> like, ah, resources, and we're like, have you stopped to consider? Ah! The locust is like, <laughs> well, you slow down just a second and think about. <laughs> yeah, that's about how I feel on this. I, I do like the image of the locust as. <laughs> like that's the actual. I mean, sound. have you seen a locust? That's basically what they are. Don't man. they just make like? Yeah, that, fair that, enough. Yeah. But I mean, you know, they're threshing the the daylights out of that land. You know. Yeah. So, have you seen yeah. Jiminy Cricket? He's just so nice and polite and inspiring, and you'd never think of him that way. But what of post-apocalyptic Jiminy Cricket? Yeah, partially because he's a. <laughs> 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 But Stop hey. confusing your insects. 
It is funny. <laughs> when I, the crickets I, all get together, it's just an orchestra. Like that's that's true. That's, that's true. They get together and they just start playing some Bach. They're fine. Mm -hmm. It's the it's the locust yeah. that makes it all different thing. But you know, locusts. I, I don't believe that locusts are dangerous to people, right? They're just dangerous to plants and thus destroying people's food sources. But it's not like they bite people, are they? I, I don't even yeah, know. They, yeah, they're, they're not piranhas. I don't yeah, think. I mean, and, and arguably, like they were sort of less devastating pre-agriculture. It was just that you know, then we found these sort of concentrated food sources that they were especially attracted to. Right, which is an argument for diversity of food source. Like one plant per person. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I was, I was, I was nonetheless sort of amused by the idea of having a plague of locusts throwing a football, but I had not considered the options of what it was actually going to lead to down the line. So, but uh, I do want to tell you guys, uh, I wanted to share something with you. Um, I am looking right at, uh, as part of the, um, actually, I'm announcing this to you guys. That I have not even told you guys this off air, but um, I have just been offered a show. A weekly show on the Good Old Games Twitch channel. Uh, good Old Games, as you may or may not know, is a place where they have a bunch of old games that are presumably good. Although they've <laughs> also started to carry a lot of AAA titles too, especially ones by CD Projekt, which is the ones that did The Witcher. Uh, they actually own them. Uh, and so I've started to, I've been offered a show on the Good Old Games channel, which I will call Pen and Pixels. Uh, it's about story and narrative in games, not shockingly. And they have about 25,000 followers, nice. and I'm going to be streaming once per week. Um, on the good old games cool. channel. That's dope. Yeah, I'm pretty excited so about it. Yes. Oh, wait. I thought I heard so Greg. No, I said that was so great. Oh, <laughs> I thought you're like, so Greg. I'm like waiting. Wait for it. Wait so for it. Greg. Wait for it. So, so Greg. So Greg. <laughs> so Greg. <laughs> so Greg. <laughs> he was just simulating an old game for you. <laughs> Locus. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they do that, but also sort of in line with the same thing. Are you going to play RBI baseball? Uh, I'm not going to play it. Well, see, the thing is that it has to be games that Good Old Games offers. Um, and they offer a lot of them, but they don't offer that one yet. Um, but it's interesting Fair you enough. bring that up, story, because, it, you know, in line with the retro theme, I am looking at what I recently got. I basically got this for my birthday. A Retron 5. Now, have either of you ever heard of oh, a Retron 5? Oh, yeah. I'm well familiar. And that's, no. like, the highest model of Retron, too, I believe. So, story, what a Retron 5 is, is it is a uh, console which is capable of playing Sega Genesis, uh, Super NES, NES, Super Famicom, Game Boy Advance, Game Boy Color games, all on one car, all on one console. It can hmm. play any of those. It also has controller outlets for all of said things that I just mentioned. Wow. So yes, so I and I have gotten this because my chat wanted me to play Shadowrun for Sega Genesis, and I felt bad. Yes, I could emulate everything in the world and do it illegally, but I don't like to do that. So I, you know, got one of these things, and so it's now sitting here. And it definitely has brought back the sort of somewhat nostalgia of playing consoles back in the day. And, and so I was, uh, I don't know, I was thinking about our previous discussions about video games. I know that Russ had one of these, but Stray, did you have a console or was it just computer stuff? I don't remember if you No, you see, that's the stuff. thing. I have to, I, I can't get as excited as you might expect about this because I never owned a gaming console until uh the 2000s until like 2004 ever okay okay interesting uh, of any kind i always played pc games and i had like fairly state-of-the-art pcs like throughout you know most of my childhood so we had like one of the very first computers that had a cd-rom i mean the com you know the brand of computer 
was like Head Start or something. They went under shortly thereafter. Was it leading but edge? It was like I one of the very first like that. Yeah. set of like CD-ROM games. No, yeah. So um, I think that was that was the brand, and they probably went under about the time people started associating that with your learning for three year olds. But um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. Um, but we never. Uh, I mean, I and I played some great some great games on that. There was this uh, this Roman Empire simulation that was in CGA graphics, where Rome was all purple, and they took over various other um, neighboring civilizations that were in like cross hatched green green and black okay. or spotted green and black. I think the Gauls were spotted green and black. And of course the, they uh, were. That's, that's historically you know, accurate. The Visigoths were like right. gray. Yeah, it was, um, it was great. There were some really good games on that, but I never I would, I would occasionally play a console at a friend's house, but I was not a console gamer at all until uh, I got a PlayStation 2 when it was already fairly washed up in 2004. So, I mean, I guess we had a console. I guess that's what we played FIFA on at the Mep House. I guess we must have had a console then, but it wasn't really mine. It, it was, was a PS2. That shared, was that so. was mine at the time. I got yeah, um, yeah. I, I remember so I actually got that the day of launch. Um, was what I had. Yeah, I wow. guess that's that's because yeah. I I got. I mean, I think my first I had a TRS-80. I had a Trash-80 uh, computer. Um, but I think my first actual <laughs> console console was this triangular thing that had uh, a light gun and a racing game with a wheel and a shift and um, a uh, Pong, like basically a Pong game. So I was technically okay. my first console, but the first sort of real console was probably my Intellivision. And I had an Intellivision and then I ended up with it. Then I got a Nintendo uh, and I had a Sega Master System as well. I think it was Nintendo and then a Sega Master System. And then I went to college and I had a PC with me, but they had Sega Genesis on the floor. So I never actually had a Super Nintendo or a Sega Genesis, but I played a billion hours right. of NHL 93. Like I played so much of NHL yeah. 93 and Street Fighter and those kinds of Wasn't NHL 93 the last one that had fighting in it? It was, yes. And it was so good. NHL 93, which had um, the undeniable, impossible deke. You could not stop it. You would skate up towards the goal at the last second. You would cut from your backhand to your forehand and you would score every time. It could not stop it. We would typically have games like 99 to, to 3, <laughs> 99, you know, 105 to 2. It was, it was amazing. Um, and I think it was Jeremy wow. Roenick. It was like the Vancouver, I want to say it was the Vancouver Canucks maybe or the Calgary Flames had like just this, just this ungodly amount of score, uh, you know, because they were good players anyway. And then when you add in that automatic deke, it was like, so, you know, the goal was to see, like, how ridiculous could you be? Like, could you rack up, like, you know, 106 in a row or, like, 105 and one or, like, you know. Um, so it was it was pretty awesome. But that was NHL 93. And I played, of course, Sonic and Echo the Dolphin and stuff like that. Um, and then when I got, you know, to my apartment, that's when I got a PS1. Then I started working at Electronics Boutique for a while and I got a PS2 and then a PS3 and an Xbox 360. So I've had a lot of consoles throughout the years. Um, but I, I just... I guess it was the whole retro thing. It was looking at the Genesis cartridge. Like, I'll probably feel even more that way with a Nintendo. Because um, I have yeah. the Intellivision console already, and that's awesome. But just, you know, the Nintendo, man, that was the first thing where I looked at it, and I just was like... I remember seeing Zelda and just being like, it's a gold cartridge, and it saves <laughs> your game on the cartridge. You don't have to put in a password. <laughs> it just saves it. Technology. It, it's amazing. Yeah. Oh, God. Zelda, that game. I... Uh, so anyway, it it is brought back, and I guess I was I was thought you guys would be interested because it just, man, it it's nostalgia is a powerful draw. It really it really is a powerful draw. It's funny. I don't I don't know why. I don't know if it's just the simple thing of like remembering when it was simpler and younger. And I don't even know that I necessarily like remembering everything about the time that I was that age. But man, 
It's, it's, it's a nice feeling, somehow. Nostalgia smooths out the edges, you know? Yeah, I, I had an Intellivision. That was my first console. You had an Intellivision I, also? I didn't know oh, that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. I had an Intellivision. I believe I was... you guys have discussed this on the map report. I, I, I knew that both of you had an Intellivision. And I think it was from listening to Map Reports. Oh, it might, or, it might or very well be. Maybe you knew that and we discussed it separately, but never <laughs> yeah. in the same yeah. sentence. At the same time. At the same <laughs> yes, place. that's true. I probably intuited it. I probably, when I met you guys <laughs> on the debate team, was like, these men were raised Therefore... by <laughs> I can tell an Intellivision man when I see one. Now, no, did I... you have that same sense of superiority, Russ, over Atari owners? Who are like, I have an Atari. I did. Like, you have a shitty system as opposed to us. I did. I like the Intellivision. It had a very, you know, uh, it had the, the controller concept was never ever used again with this disc it looked like a phone yeah it looked like you were playing games on an old tiny yes, rotary yes, it does phone. and you had the overlays you put in over it basically yeah and so yeah. that was you know that gave you skills that would never be relevant again with your fingers that's <laughs> true <laughs> you develop non-relevant <laughs> like, no you do, you do disc disc button side button and everyone's like, it is totally true never. and it's a it was a terrible controller and that's exactly why it was so good for skills that you would never use again um, but I definitely remember playing uh, Space Invaders with my dad on television. He yep. was very good at Space Invaders. Um, and my favorite game of all time was Shark Shark, which yep. I, to this day, have looked for other little Flash games or app games to replicate my joy of Shark Shark. That I remember um, you talking about. I do remember Shark Shark for sure. Yeah. Um, definitely had and, that. And uh, Agario, I think, is the closest uh, contemporary game that I think captures the, the idea of Shark Shark. And it's multiplayer, so it's not just robot, uh, you know artificial intelligence fish you're actually playing against other people and <laughs> if you guys ever have i ever told you about that the amoeba eating game agaria uh you told us that you were playing it the one time and i was like what is this and then you showed me something which looked vaguely like a colorful venn diagram and yeah i was like okay that's yeah get... it's little it's little circular venn or amoebas that try to eat each other and uh yeah you obviously get bigger as you eat things and the bigger you get, the slower you get. Yeah, it is. Speaking yeah. of locusts and grasshoppers, there's no way to be a grasshopper in Agario. You've got to eat to survive. Uh, <laughs> kind of like, kind of like our worlds. I think it's spoken great. like a true capitalist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, then I moved on to Nintendo, which was, uh, you know, I was very, very little with the Intellivision, so Nintendo was more of the prime, the prime of my video game life. I went through right. all. The Dragon Warriors and Final Fantasy games. Zelda. Uh, Super Nintendo was huge into that. And then in college, I got a, a Nintendo 64, which I had up in my room. We played countless hours of uh, Super Mario Kart. That's right. I forgot. Yeah, I, did, I didn't have one, but I played a little bit of that as well. There was that whole stage where, I mean, if you were, in if you were on a dorm floor... You know, there was never, you didn't have multiples. You had one person whose room was always open at all hours mm -hmm. who had a console and you just went in and played that. You know, so it was like there was never any need. Solo games were mostly played on the PC, but like socially, that was the social area. You would just go up. Oh, yeah. And, Freshman know. year at Brandeis, um, the entire, uh, I guess I guess it was the like varsity or junior varsity, maybe the entire Brandeis soccer team was just in my room playing Mario Kart tournaments. Like, <laughs> that and... You know, Goldeneye, uh, right? Goldeneye and Mario Kart and abusing freshman women. That was what their hobbies were. Oh, God. So they thought <laughs> of all those things. Jesus. It's, uh, it, yeah, we, Goldeneye. There was definitely a lot of uh, hanging out both at Brandeis and at other people's colleges when I would go to visit. Like, there was definitely a lot of Goldeneye. Everybody seemed to have, have Goldeneye, like, during our first couple years in college. 
And uh, what was the other one? What was the Star Wars game? It wasn't Star Jedi Fox? Knight. Oh, Star oh, no, it was... Battlefronts? No, it was... There's too many damn games. We could, Rogue like, name Squadron? 500... Oh. Yeah, was it? Rogue Squadron, Rogue yes. Rogue yeah. Squadron. Oh, boy. Rogue Squadron was excellent, which I was, like, halfway decent at, which, it, like, it was very, very difficult. And then, like, for some reason, the thing that just felled me was the place where you have to loop the around cables? the tow cables. The walkers. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I just couldn't do it. I, I just it. couldn't do it. I was like, I was keeping up with everyone. We were all like competing and taking turns and whatever else, and and everyone was watching and guiding each other. I like for two weeks of my life, I tried to bring down the doggone walkers, <laughs> and I just would always crash in one of the legs, and it was over. I just gave up. I'm like, I can't. I'm done. And other oh, people man. were like off, like destroying Death Stars and stuff, and I was like, I can't. And you're Death like Wedge, Wedge is like, use your harpoons and tow cables. And you're like, go fuck yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, Shut that up, Wedge. Phrase, like on the dreams, it is like indelibly etched. In my brain, that like I'm using them, you jerk. Listen, you lucky survivor bastard. You shouldn't even be alive talking to me. All right, you just shut up and yeah, can we name do the thing? Anyway, can we do the lightsaber and throw the grenade inside the body? Does anything not? Hard yeah, does anything work that way? There's a guy on uh, Twitch uh, who I follow whose name is Striker, who actually does speed runs, and he does those all like first shot. He's just like blam, tow cable, blah blah blah, blam, 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 and you're like, wow, that's that's impressive. And that's like that's the speed run thing. Like they just get Probably crazy did them good like at a game. Five times as much as I did when he was <laughs> at the time. It's yeah, I would imagine. All, I think there's a lot memory. of work that's involved. But you realize, like guys like that, the speed running masters, like you'll take them to an Olive Garden and they won't know what a fork is because yes. they've used up <laughs> all of their database on on this, this skill set. So they just they're can't. just speaking to you in hand signals. <laughs> yeah, just you want like... food? Uh, is a uh, I have food? Food. <laughs> Food is up. Okay, but what about the... Oh, I'm food, gotta go fast. Gotta go yes. fast. Kappa, food meme. Yeah, oh. talk to them through, like, uh, use it up to through Mario World <laughs> metaphors. You're like, bullet, bullet bill. He's like, yeah, bullet, bullet bill. Jump on the bullet bill. I'm like, all right, good. And he eats. You actually have to, you actually, uh, they have the new uh, game out called a Mario Maker. So you actually have to make a level to communicate with them in Mario Maker, like spelling out in coins, like what you wanted to do. He's like, oh. On Reddit last night, I saw some run through of some impossible level that someone had made in Mario Maker and some guy just doing it. And it's just, it's the most absurd. I mean, retro gamers today must think that we who played these games in the 90s were just like Cro Magnon gamers because the stuff. That they do, where they just like do the spinny jump to bounce off a ball to avoid being eaten like eight consecutive times, and then like holding a turtle shell hovering above two inches above the ground and smacking another one in midair so you can jump. Like, I yeah, could, I can't even fathom. I mean, literally, they literally have no other room in their brains for anything. I don't. Well, know and it's and it's funny because like the retro gamer, sort of the new retro gamer, the person who's like you know seventeen and thinks that they understand retro is they think that a lot of the things that are retro are things that we, like, chose. You know, like, the reason we didn't have mini-maps is because they, we couldn't have them. We wanted them, though. Like, we didn't want to do things on graph paper. I didn't want to have to, like, you know, I mean, like, why, why would anyone, like, of their own free will choose a game that has a bunch of glitches in it? And you're like, well, you know, you just do the glitch with the thing. And so I put in a glitch. I'm like, why did you build in a glitch? 
It's 2015. You should be happy we have no more need for glitches. It's you guys a new world. So dumb. Why do you, know? you use such deep TVs? Our TVs are slim. Why were you using those I mean, you know, deep TVs? It's just, it's just, it's like, it's like people who used to talk about the original instrument craze in classical music, and they were like, oh, you must listen to it the way Beethoven wanted to. And then you'd, re you'd research and you find that Beethoven got every new piano that was made, like the minute, like bleeding edge piano, he immediately purchased and was always like, can you please make an even better piano? Because the one I have now really sucks and I want to bet. Like he was not, I don't want to listen to yeah. my old garbage. And like, they're complaining stuff. about the harpsichord being like, look at these fucking retro idiots with their <laughs> you harpsichords. Know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Who cares, <laughs> man? That was 12 years ago. Oh, Viola da Gamba is nonsense. That's where it's at. And then everyone gets into an argument about who's the most retro gamer that exists and retro music player. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely true. And the, the funny thing about the Mario Maker ones is watching the people who think that old school gamers was school gaming also involved people who just occasionally screwed you for no reason like i was it actually reminded me of the whole locust thing because i watched someone playing it and the guy said i'm actually starting to trust people in humanity less because of this game <laughs> because like you're running along and like you do this thing and like you're running along the top and you think you finally found the exit and you get over to the top and then you fall down and there's a spike at the bottom of it and it turns out you were supposed to jump off the third to last one as opposed to the final one like there's that that's not you know there's less like i hate humanity all of people i'm like no just don't just hate that particular very, being serious about a video game that people are competitive about online is a very depressing enterprise because you can spend countless hours figuring things out you can even use the internet as a tool to help you to get better at the game and the minute that you try to compare your like best score best time or most amazing feat with someone on the internet you realize that they're like 20,000 people in Thailand who have done it months ago and, and laugh at you. And like, it's, yes. there's no, because you're literally competing with the whole globe in, in that thing. And it's yes. just, it's well, yeah, I mean, this battle. is the problem with being on a planet, speaking of locusts of 7 billion people, right? It's like somebody's better. Just somebody is better at everything. Just stop. Yep. Just somebody is better. at. Everything. I mean, it's not just stop, like do what, do what you want to do, but don't hold the illusion that you're going to be the best at something because you're not, you're just mm -hmm. not. Well, That's this okay. is why this is why people need to become better at like very obscure things, like the big, the fastest ketchup bottle opener. No, no, no. Right? That's like, what I mean... everyone. That's the dragon that everyone's mistakenly chasing, and there's someone with a faster ketchup bottle. Like it's <laughs> it's already been done. It's been booked. Someone with more dexterous hands and six fingers on each hand is already squeezing that ketchup bottle harder than you could ever train to do. You can't come up with anything weird enough. It's all you know, sales. It's all, Guinness, it's all over. Just find your happiness somewhere else, people. Guinness has like canceled certain categories of world records because of the like abusive nature of what people would go through to try to complete them. <laughs> like I don't, I don't remember exactly, but it's like they're really bad ones. Like there used to be a Guinness World Record for like hitting your wife or something like that, and they're just what? like, all right, let's. There did let's not. <laughs> I like, I like the idea that they've abandoned that category. They're like, like well, this was appropriate in the 1950s, but now we yeah. don't think hitting, hitting one's wife is <laughs> I think smoking was healthy and also. <laughs> the record for most genocides. We've decided to remove that no, because it there was There was one for the most cigarettes you could smoke in your mouth at once. Like I remember like, yeah, 80s I remember and that. 90s videos of people with this massive lip elasticity that could hold like 150 <laughs> cigarettes in their mouth at once. But then Guinness is like, this is probably instant death for most people who try this. So I like to think of that being something record. where they're just sitting there and then they just imagine to themselves, they're like, you know, that's probably a terrible idea. Like, it just sort of dawns on them. Maybe this is not, maybe we shouldn't, you know. 
I don't know. I, did you guys have... I know there were, like, the people who obsessively collected the Guinness Book yeah. of World Records. Did you guys ever do... I mean, I don't know that... I guess I should... I mean, I, actually, I should know the answer to this. I assume Story with the Luminarias is uh, pursuing something similar. But it seems to me like I never really understood the the desire for a record-setting pace. Like, I mean, I understand the idea of fame, and I get wanting to be the best at something and all that. I, I don't know that... I don't... I, I, is it just sort of your own personal knowledge that you have set a record... Or is it that you want people to know about the record that has been set? Like, is it a fame thing? Or is it a I'm the best thing that causes people to be like, I can drink five gallons of milk in a second because I'm a Guinness Mr. Before. Guberman, this is a question for you. Oh, oh, that's uh, all just fear of death. I mean, that's, that's all just like a reaction to I am a temporary being and what however insignificant thing can I have as a permanent record of my existence within the human race. Okay. That's it. That's, That's your it. answer. I'll That's buy legacy. that. Is that story, you, your thoughts? I mean, I don't, I really don't feel like I relate to that in particular. I mean, I see it through a lens of, so I'll, I'll give a two pronged answer to this. So I don't, I don't feel like I have that innate drive to like, set a record just for the sake of the record like i care very deeply about being very excellent at things that i care about but it's because i care about those things like i cared about debate not because i just want to be like cool for being great at something but like because i really thought debate was an important thing to be good at and what wait well i'm sorry um, suddenly, and suddenly we just you know same with the luminarias like wait. they're a function of the joy that they bring yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. We just got game no, show I don't know. music coming. I'm sorry. The, the, all, the all-time domino champion wanted to phone in with a question. <laughs> I was just like, I actually know why we do these things. <laughs> the reason is so, uh, sorry. So, so, but the same thing with luminaries. Yeah, so like, you just like luminaries. Right. Okay. Well, yeah, I I really like them, and they bring a lot of joy to people, and they bring a lot of joy to me, and it's an aesthetic. And you know, yeah, I have a sort of crazy streak for its own sake, but it's not really like. I don't see it as a desire to be like the best or known for being the best as much as it's like kind of that I, I get passionate and crazy about things. But I will say I do have, you know, I do have a competitive streak that can be activated, which sort of by definition, I think being really competitive is the idea of valuing something for the sake of valuing being good at it without any other particular ulterior end of actual value. Right. And I don't, yeah, I can't really explain, but I, it doesn't ever get to the level of like, I need to be in the book of records for this. It's mostly just like, I really need to win this board game right now. Um, and <laughs> I don't, I, I, I don't know how to explain that other than that. Like having competitiveness has always been able to ignite an energy in me that wouldn't be in me otherwise. And I think that that itself is the drive like i think at that point it's sort of short-circuited itself where like at some point i was competitive for and that was explicable or... Uh, or i may have uh, have you been getting a lot of robot from story Russell? oh yeah i was hoping that you weren't and it was yeah i'm getting a lot of robot i, I was hoping that that Reason. was and i know not, not what now... at this point i have learned or trained myself enough that competitiveness brings out energy in me and so therefore it's a kickstart no uh so so time out um i was getting it was really interesting the 50 percent of it that we got um i got a hell of a lot of robot there 
Um, yeah, well, you guys sound like robots to me, if that makes anybody feel better. <laughs> awesome. I'm getting a lot of robots from you guys, too. Ooh, uh, robots! Domo. Domo. Cool. Um, yeah, uh, so there, but we've talked about that competitive streak before. I mean, and, you know, right. getting the debate flow, yeah. you know, like the whatever was the debate, the, poker, you know, I yeah. just I have more energy when I'm competing for whatever reason. So, see, I've know, always felt that way. I've always felt that way when it's a team environment because I love being with teams. So I, I've always felt that way in that regard. Like, I mean, I like winning tennis matches, I guess. And I, but you know, we've talked about the fact I don't have the same competitive gene you guys do, but I, I, I really do love it when I'm with a team of people like that is doing well on something. I'm down with that, like big time. Right. And that's probably why, like, I team sports for the same reason. Like, I, I like, I like working together for a common cause and all that stuff. That I, you know, I can do that all day. Um, but I think like the individual competitive gene. I don't know. I'm not sure that I've got that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely. Definitely have the competitive gene. I mean, not, this is a surprise to nobody. Um, I was going to say, and, really? Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, I think it's part of what you're saying, Greg, that I enjoy being on a team and having this sort of artificial adversary created that you can all band together to try to defeat. I think that's a really compelling... The manifestation of evil is what you're getting at. Actually. Yeah. Not just, just an adversary, but actually because, all evil. You know, because all games are symbolic of war or of, of you know struggle, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. On an individual level, I feel it just the same, like, and for no reason. And you know, could be about a thing that I didn't think I cared about until somebody beat me at it, and then I decided that it was an important thing to be good at. Um, I guess yeah. There's just some basic evolutionary precept where we all try to be better at the thing, or it's testosterone, or and then, lo- and then locusts, and then locusts, and that's how locusts are created. And I'm, I'm. Uh, as locusty a person as you'll ever come. I'm so locust. But I mean, hi, I'm Russ, and I'm a locust. <laughs> hi, Russ. <laughs> locust anonymous. But I mean, like that's. But that's the thing, right? Is that um, it, I always talked about the fact that I thought it was possible to have a sort of competitive aspect and a competitive streak but be a fundamentally good person. I mean, like, I, I think that the the sort of the one thing that I think we got that is a positive from some of the sort of warrior mentality stuff is that there is a culture of honor that sets in. You know, I think about uh, soldiers fighting in World War One who during Christmas time, you know, the combat would cease and they would kind of sing songs, you know, with each other across the line and stuff like that. And there's a certain honor in the way that it was conducted. Again, this is not to you know justify any of it it should never have happened in the first place etc greg the, endorses world war one <laughs> greg wanted one. world war one film 11 no. um so but i think I, I always thought that it was possible to be able to do both of those things and i think that's probably still the case but i do wonder sometimes because russ you've talked before about how this competitive streak of yours is slightly ter- disturbing to you like you decided you wanted to become super like competitive about like the yankees so that you wouldn't become super competitive about i don't know like making someone feel terrible, you know, like intellectually, you know, or yeah, like, I, like basically yeah. it was to save you from yourself, right? Like it is. Well, I realized that at the age of about 13 or 14, that I was this insanely over competitive person. And so I recognized that and I said, okay, this is the truth. So let's um, channel this through like the most harmless avenues possible. And so that left things like sports and games and board games and video games and I was totally fine 
um, channeling my over-competitiveness through those things, but I was very careful not to do it in, you know, social circles and academia, um, and yeah, using it to quiet people or to shame people or that sort of thing. And so that's, that's how I, I, I managed it, I guess. Whereas for you, story, it was more about sort of the energy that was kind of generated from it. Actually, you know what just struck me? Yeah, I mean, I think oh, I've embraced it. Be yeah, because I just think that, like, you know, and I've done a lot of analysis of it, too, because, like, I, when I don't have a competitive outlet, like, I suffer. I, I feel like there's something missing, and I feel like I have less, like, motivation. I get more depressed, like... You know, it's like exercise for me. I think it's sort of in a very similar box of sort of like, you know, I feel better when I am walking or doing something physical like most of the species does, you know, at mm -hmm. some point in my day. And I feel better when I'm competing for something. And I, I don't it's it's hard for me because I feel like, you know, it's one of those things like following sports that when I take a step back from it, I'm like, OK, objectively, this is not serving a purpose like this literally is no this literally is no good like this does not fit with my ethos of like what people should care about like you know i feel like i believe in equality more than probably anyone that i know as just like a basic concept like a hardcore socialist like think everything should be equalized for everybody and yet i really value individual competition like that does not make a lot of sense um but and then you go you know and it really and you, like, and you like, want to ride a really... dinosaur the other inconsistencies of your life pirate riding yeah. dinosaurs <laughs> right. You know, so I I just like, you know, it's like I can say sports are an objective waste of time, but I still love them. And like, I'm going to waste my time that way, even though like it's costing me things that I value more. I don't know. Maybe that's what it's like to be an alcoholic, but like I, <laughs> on a very low scale. You know, but but like I just I can't you know, I was thinking about this at the poker tournament yesterday. You know, I was sitting for nine hours to bust out 13 before the money on a ridiculous outdraw that somebody yeah, hit on me that. but you know but like just yeah but just the the moments of you know the the thrill of the competition and just the feeling of being in there i mean I, i'm sure it's wrapped up in some way with a sense of sort of intelligence you know we all know i'm in like perpetual lifelong recovery from being you know told I was a prodigy when I was young and how much that will do to mess up your future because everything is a disappointment that follows. Um, but you know, so like there's something about the, there's, I'm sure it's somehow tied up with a narrative of like, you know, you were here with only your wits to guide you and you can outsmart everybody else in the room, but it's not really an ego thing in that way. Like I'm sure that like echoing in the back, but it's mostly just like I, I feel really energized and I feel really alive when I'm competing. Maybe it's just a simulation of, you know, I don't have any cliffs to jump over to save the village. So, you know, these are my cliffs. <laughs> this is where the adrenaline comes from. Find I don't your really cliff. know. But Find I've, your I've stopped fighting bought. it. I think for a lot of the time after college when I was at. Yeah, like like a lot of the time after college when I was out of debate and I was convinced that debate would not have any more role in my life and whatever, I was just like, you know, I just did this sort of cold, sober analysis of like, well, I'll play, you know, board games once in a while. Um, and even then, like, it got kind of like too much. Like I, I took, you know, pick up kickball and board games way too seriously because I was craving you know, competitive outlets. And I was like, no, you know, I'll tamp this down. I'll, I'll, it's, you know, time to put away childish things. And I've stopped. I've stopped fighting it. I'm, I'm embracing that I'm a competitive person and 
that if I have, you know, healthy outlets, kind of like what Russ is saying, as long as I'm not using it to, you know, as long as I have a diverse enough field of outlets where it's appropriate, like, you know, a sport or poker or debate, then then it won't bleed into, you know, things where it becomes inappropriate. Yeah, weirdly enough, um, I've also kind of embraced my competitiveness uh, later in life, and it, I guess, in a in a kind of backwards kind of secondary way, it has chosen for me um, the activities that I'm doing for myself because whatever I'm doing, whether it's going to law school or working at a job or what have you, I kind of ask myself, like, what's the end game of this, assuming that I allow my competitiveness to come out and try to advance through the rankings of whatever this thing is, like, do I like the outcome of that? And for so many things, I would say, no, I don't like the life that this entails. I don't want any of the I will sell more IMDb subscriptions. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I like how you said IMDb subscriptions. You sold the Internet Movie Database. Sir, you do in your life more free movie databases. More free movie databases. How much would you say? Everybody went to the site. It's such a popular site. <laughs> Top 10 worldwide. I don't know. Isn't it free? <laughs> yes, sir. But today only it's $20. Okay. It sounds don't like a Don't you good wonder deal. about Robert De Niro movies and you want to know? <laughs> Just go there. And you want to pay me for them, don't you? <laughs> All right. I don't know what their business model is. I did very well. <laughs> Let me just um, go get my life savings <laughs> with the mattress. I'll be right back. Yeah. But I think that um, in coming to things like improv, um, where I really have zero reservations at all about being competitive about it because all that means is that I'm just working really hard and seeking out good teachers and finding a way to express myself via the art form, which is really what you're supposed to do if you're an artist is you're supposed to be immersed and completely invested in it and want and want it to be your life. And to that my like OCD and competitiveness feel very comfortable in that space. And so that's one of the reasons why uh, it's something that I spend a lot of my time on because I never have any. I'm like, well, well, what's the end game of this, Russ? I'm like, no, there really isn't one. It's just you just keep doing this and just try to get better at it. So that that works. But there's a certain, you know, living in the moment thing that's very appealing about that. I think. I mean, part of the argument that we always have is that it tends to be the people who spend a lot of time thinking for a living, <laughs> whatever you're thinking in. Um, spend a lot of time thinking, you know, being outside the moment. It's always kind of future planning. It's always kind of conceive of what will happen next and what will be the next book I publish or the next thing. And in a way, I realized there was a whole portion of my life at one point that was all based upon I was always happiest when I was doing something and I knew there was another thing coming after it, you know. And I was always like, there's something kind of wrong with that. Um, and so in a way, I think debate for me was not even just the – it was not the competitive thing for me. It was the fact that I, I've never felt sort of as connected in the moment as when I was making an argument that I thought was making a difference and having an influence. And the other side of it, also the fact that I felt I was really good at it and it was it was a pleasure to be able to have something that I was like, that I felt like I was better than a lot of people at. Not because I wanted to make the other people feel worse, but because it made me feel better about me, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Like, and, and I was like, I, I, this is something that I can qualify at. But I have to say, you know, my individual debate success was extremely important to me. I put the coaching side, the team success, 
was at the same level for me. You know, like I, I wouldn't say it was more than that, but I would say that the coaching was as important to me. I don't know what you think, Story, but for me, the coaching was as no, important I... to me as the individual stuff because watching the team shape the way it was, and I'm very proud of what we did with that team. It was the second most uh, successful team in the country for a five-year span, and I'm very proud of that. And I felt like, you know, it was wonder. It, for me, it was wonderful to see the team kind of come together and work together for a common goal. And for me to think, I felt like I was gifted in making it possible for people to do that. You know what I mean? So there was definitely like an individual satisfaction moment, not just I'm glad we're all getting along and the community stuff I love. Yeah, yeah. But there was definitely a part of it that was like, I'm glad that I knew how to reach people and bring them together in a way that it would work, you know? Right. I had the exact same experience. I mean, I expected coaching to be, I was hoping. You know, it's like a recovering addict. I was hoping it would be like 50% of what I felt as a competitor. I was like, that was like the most I let myself hope for. Right. And like, if it's, if it's, if it's a pale shadow or better then this is going to be great. And it was, I, I, I felt it was exactly equal. I didn't think it surpassed it, you know, I, but I don't think it was in any way. Yep. I mean, I look at my five years of coaching and my four years of competing and I'm, I see them very equally in terms of yep. my excitement. And my passion, you know, like my sense of satisfaction, it was, it was, they were very similar experiences, which really surprised me. But very early on, I mean, the first time that they broke, I knew I'm like, oh no, this is, this feels exactly the same. This feels just like it did. And that, and that was a really pleasant surprise. So, but I do think there's something, I will throw this out there. I do think there's a common thread between, you know, and we can maybe pull some other activities into this, but the things that come to mind are debate and improv and poker that they all do sort of uniquely, I think, put you in the moment in a way that other activities don't necessarily. I would um, accept that. Sure. Well, my you know, music, and, may, and can teaching, I, can I we can in, probably can throw I, in. I would. Well, teaching. you know what? Not teaching. Yes, sometimes that's yeah. true. That is true. Sometimes I do feel that way. The Lord of the Rings class I'm teaching right now, I'm really enjoying because of that. But also I would say music. You know, for me, mm. like a lot of times oh, yeah, playing of in a band, even more than writing, and that's not to say, I mean, I consider myself a writer, you know, a little bit over a musician, but I'll tell you what, sure. there is nothing like the experience of singing in front of a live audience and having the music, yeah, yeah. which is more of a sort of straight to your gut anyway. You know, it's hard, it's not even intellectualized in a way with the music. Um, so the music is no, very it's much funny like you that say me. that, Adam. Zirkin, Zirkin always used to say, you know, when, when we were in touch after, after college, he would would always say that he really loved and valued his time in the bands that he was in because it was the only thing that came close to giving a PMR in yeah. in a break round or something is yeah. like being there and and that makes that makes perfect sense. So those are all things that sort of draw you, you know, and I mean maybe less so with with music I guess, but you know, the, the competitive edge or aspect to them to a certain extent but they also force a presentism all of those things that if you're not totally absorbed in the moment you're going to mess up like For if sure. you are if you are in your past or, or future brain in any way you're done in all of those environments and and we've all seen people in all of those environments who are doing that and overthinking it and get like completely lost so so that kind of enforced present reality i think is part of what makes you feel so alive doing all those things you know and of course the other thing is and of course this is russ will be right on board with this one I mean, they're all performative. I mean, they're all performative. Even even to the extent yeah. of poker, I would argue is performative. It's, oh, absolutely. It's, it's all it's absolutely. performative, and and I think we love perform. We're performers, really. We love performing. We're doing so at the moment. You know, like we we love performing, and I think that's because there's a there's an energy of of a, something about the crowd of people. Like, and I noticed this. I'm teaching a speech course this semester, as you guys know, 
and you know, obviously I coached it for a long time, but it's about the performative aspect also that I really admire and that I really find sort of transformative. And it frustrates me then when I hear people talk about, well, so-and-so gives a pretty speech, but do they really do anything? As if like speaking is this big separate device from doing and as if speaking hasn't been one of the most enormously important aspects of leading to doing that we have, you know, like a speech that inspires Mm -hmm. or that draws people together or that can do terrible things also. I mean, like, you know, Adolf Hitler and Martin Luther King, best speakers of the 20th century, (laughs) you know, opposite ends of the moral plane. But But that's what I mean. Like there's the performative aspect has this sort of um i don't know this 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 energy of all that are sort of drawn together by the individual or the team but you're a part of it performance so mm-hmm. yeah yeah i um in my life i've had maybe a handful probably less maybe two or three um legitimate out of body experiences and they were both in a, a performative context um, really? Yeah, one was, in, strangely enough, at Northwestern uh, at a high school debate camp um, when I was there over the summer in the middle of a tournament for the debate camp, um, and I was giving a, in policy what was a 1AR, which only exists in policy. It's like the first affirmative rebuttal after this huge block of negative uh, speeches, and you have to respond to two speakers, 13 minutes worth of stuff, and you have five minutes to do it. Mm-hmm. And... I just remember there's a one AR in LD too. Okay, it's it's, the, it's similarly structured. It's like four minutes responding to like everything. Yeah. it's like a four minute MG. Yeah, and in in policy debates, since you're encouraged to speak as fast as you can, like speed matters, and so the negative block will try to dump as fast as they can on you, like giving you a, a physical limitation of how much you can respond to. And uh, I just remember sitting there at the while we were prepping, using our prep time, and my partner was a little bit stressed at how much prep time I was using. I was just like just. Just take it easy. I got this. And then, <laughs> just relax. And then I got up, and I delivered a 1AR. And in the middle of it, I was like thinking to myself, I said, hey, this is going well. And then I realized while I was saying, hey, this is going well, that I was just sort of watching myself give this 1AR, in which I was just completely annihilating the other team and like grouping arguments that they thought they were dumping on me, like all of them into like three tiny boxes and destroying each box one at a time. And uh, and I was just like, hey, look at me! I'm I'm giving a good speech down there. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, should, I should go back pretty soon. I think <laughs> <laughs> reentry is going to be a problem. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I uh, I don't I don't know why those things happen, but it has something to do with kind of being in the zone, and uh, those things are usually brought on by stakes, by higher stakes, and uh, I think. For the most part, you need other people to manifest those stakes, which is why performative things are so different than everything else. It's funny because it happens in these things you don't expect. Uh, I remember that I actually had a very similar feeling to that, um, although it wasn't out of body. Um, And I remember it very distinctly because I was acting in a production of I Remember Mama, which is this play, my senior year of high school. And I was Papa. (laughs) And, And apparently I remembered my wife. Um, but no, uh, but uh, so I remember sitting in, there's this scene where you're sitting in the kitchen and you're talking to this person. And I was, and Mama was played by someone who I actually would also go to my senior prom with. She was a very, very good actress. And I'm in Facebook touch with her now. Um, and there was this stage where this guy who was a friend of mine is one of the roles in the play comes in and we're in the kitchen and I'm doing the thing and I've got my accent and, you know, she's talking to me. And I felt, I remember distinctly like losing track of reality for a minute. 
And like for a minute, I swore I wasn't like I felt like I had become him, but I felt like I was like, holy crap! It's like we are in the scene. Like what? This is this is happening. Like right now, these people mm-hmm. are we're actually back in the 1910s in some tenement, and we're like having this discussion. You know, it was it was the strangest thing, and it was in front of a live audience. And acting always got me up too. I was always excited for that too, but it was mm-hmm. just I was so like moved and touched and like amazed and said and I talked to my mother about it because my mother obviously had been off Broadway and stuff like that and she said yep once in a while you get an experience where you feel as if you're you're there you know and yeah it could be in the zone it could be something else but it felt as if we're all there sitting in a tenement room talking to each other and it was just that you know five minute scene or whatever and I've done a lot of productions and had a lot of moments where things were you know great I could tell that it was going well but that's sort of losing awareness of oneself as an actor for a moment and just imagining it as you are in the scene and these are people as these characters. That was a strange experience and a wonderful one is great, you know, but it was just a strange thing. Um, and maybe you do like immersion. <laughs> You're right. You know what? You're right about that. Hey, I do. There was something different about that immersion. I don't know what, but, you know. Mostly because it didn't involve zombies being like, no, I will eat you, Eastern European immigrant. No! (laughs) (laughs) Why am I immersed, God? (laughs) We will immerse you in us. Immerse you in our mouths by one step at a time. Oh. Biz, 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 biz. Locusts. Locusts. I think, yeah, there probably is something about uh, music and debate and poker and art that maybe gives us access to human faculties that we don't usually use in everyday life. And so in, in using them, um, we find ourselves capable of things that we weren't really aware of. I mean, I'm story I'm sure clearly remembers that we've, we've had like very serious, like psychic, you know, litmus tests, like playing poker before. Oh, you have no idea how, how much I've developed into that <laughs> you have no idea how deep that rabbit hole goes it's it's really it's 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 kind of freaks me out sometimes i kind of like i don't know i can't Do you, have you way. gotten better at detecting when it's for real and when it's just you convincing yourself that things are happening? yeah i mean the part that you know the part that's always weird is the sending the messages back in time is that when it happens <laughs> then i have to send the message back in time that's when it always gets to me of like how i have to like powerfully send the signal back because it's already been so that you know for the future ones that you'll have done that again Uh, i think story sending a message back in time i'm I'm waiting i'm waiting to get it it is literally time shifting too so i mean yeah i it's just yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not perfect. I mean, what what I've not gotten good at when I really feel it, like, to, to go all in on the Jack 7 that's going to hit a straight. You know, like, mm-hmm. that I just haven't, I haven't gotten that committed to yet because I will feel so stupid when I misread it and it doesn't happen. And it's like, you know, and my logical game is good enough at this point that, like, it seems needless. It seems like, you know, it's, it's like... It's like going for broke. It, you know, you're in a break round or something that you're like 60-40 to win if you do everything right and you should just, just like play it by ear. And then like there's this voice in your head that's like if you go totally off the flow and crazy, you, you have like a 70% chance of a 100% chance of winning. 
but if you have a 30% chance of definitely, you know, of losing, of like, we're just going to do this two out of three coins, and I should win, but I might totally lose. And why take that risk when I have a decent chance of winning anyway? So God, that's now... kind of at the point where I'm wrestling with it. And but it's um, but there's a lot of things that are eerie. This is so. now reminding me of that Dennis Quaid movie where he picks up like an old ham radio and he's talking to his dad who lived in the oh, like, World yes. War Two era. Yes. And it's. Yes. You know, and he's he's talking through time, but it also because of the 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 communication breaks that it's like stories, words are coming to us from another parallel dimension. It's like meta. It's, through the time, it's, through the, through it's the more time meta clock. than you could possibly get. Yeah. you know, <laughs> which means you're Dennis Quaid's story. That's what this means. Really That's Dennis amazing. Quaid. This entire yeah. story's entire side of the podcast was told to us from the future as the warning. I was going to say, what do you guys, who do you guys like in 2024? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I remember that movie. That movie was creepy. Um, I I have to say that uh, I actually have experienced a couple times in debate too, where someone will say something and you feel like you've, um, like like you, it's almost like you imagined that they would say something and you didn't know what it was. But you knew whatever was about to happen was going to be different. Like, in other words, you know, you, you because people know who haven't debated, like, there are patterns. Mm -hmm. So, you know, typically arguments work in patterns. And you know that this is this kind of pattern. And that's an argument about mm -hmm. maximum utility. And that's, you know, different things, right? And, but I remember there are times when uh, it actually happened once. I'll give... I'll give a former debate uh, group uh, person of ours, uh, Jordan Factor, a pop here. I remember watching him uh, debate a uh, round on world uh, world debate round, so it was a you know British um, format type thing on uh, cloning. And um, he starts out. And it's this thing about clones, and people are talking about cloning is bad and stuff like that. And we were on the side. I think we were. I want to say we were first prop or something like that, or second prop. But it was arguing in favor of cloning. And Jordan gives this whole speech about, and most people are talking about, we can't play God. What are the implications about the effect on the rest of the species? Mm -hmm. And Jordan, and I, as he was getting up, I'm thinking to myself, I have a feeling, for no reason at all, I have a feeling that he's going to say something totally different than anything we've talked about regarding clones at all. Like, it's going to be just, and he gets up, he's like, what about, uh, you know, everyone's talked about the effect on other human beings. So I want to talk about the clone. What about the alpha? Like, what about the first clone? What happens to the person's, you know, considerations of his own identity? I, like, all this stuff talking about the one individual clone. Like, not all the other mm -hmm. groups and what is it going to do to everything else. And I remember being like, holy crap. It was, a, And I had that weird sense of, like, I didn't know the argument. But it was this weird deja vu thing of, I think he's going to make a very different argument. Yep, there, that's, I have, I, that's awesome. I had no idea he was going to make that argument. But I knew it was going to be different than any argument anyone had done yet. And that's strange. It's like this bizarre, not very useful prophecy skill that doesn't really help with anything and doesn't really, you know, because it's too short term and it's too vague. Like, I think something's mm -hmm. going to happen and then something happens. It's not it's too vague. But yeah. it's it's strong, though. I mean, it's and it's clearly there. It's clearly there in some way. It's not just some random accident or coincidence. In, in There's some feeling about something happening. In improv, this has happened to me a few times where... Um, I was going to ask was, about that. Oh, yeah. I, I, uh, in a classroom setting, I was doing a scene with this girl. And uh, she was her, her body language was kind of staring out into the audience. And so um, I labeled her as, you know, why are you watching TV? Specifically Lost. Like, we got to stop watching Lost, okay? There's a whole world out there that we can live in that isn't the TV series Lost. And so we went through this whole... Um, scene and then the, our teacher at the end of it was like you know what she does for a living right I'm like no 
and he's like, oh, she does uh, voiceover for the Spanish uh, broadcast of Lost. And I was like, what? <laughs> wow. You out of your mind? That's awesome. You're wow. fucking crazy. Um, yeah, and then another time I was just, and a lot of the time since in this particular class we work on monologues and just going with the flow kind of thing and just being inspired by whatever and then going on a rant and just have words come out of your mouth. Um, another time... I don't even debate. No, yeah, just kidding. (laughs) Very similar. Like I don't even remember the context of it anymore. But I was, I think I was talking about the life of like a poor uh, artist living in the city who like is trying to uh, redesign his apartment, and so he he spits into a bucket of spackle to like be able to loosen it up a little bit so that he can like finish the 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 patching the hole in the wall. And then after I finished that, some guy like raised his hand in the class and he's like, I, I just did that yesterday, that exact thing. And I was like, what? Wow. You're crazy. See, that's yeah. that, there's some. So, yeah, there's something you're clearly absorbing some kind of universal awareness. Um, I mean, the universal subconscious is a thing, man. And like the aspects of the universal subconscious are a thing. I, I, I don't it's not it's not just sort of fake philosophical theory. I mean, it's. It's, it's happened too many times where things like that occur and there's no explanation for them otherwise. I told you guys the story of the time that I went to, uh, uh, this is you know, a little bit sort of darker than I meant to go, but uh, I, went, I was at the, my father's funeral. And in the front pew of the church we are, inside the hymnal, at the hymn, at the song of the hymn where my father, which is the hymn that we were going to sing at his funeral, is a clip from one of his favorite poems ever by Robert Louis Stevenson. It is a piece of paper with three lines, his favorite three lines, and I know this because he told me, from the poem, in the book. And it was, I checked later on, there was no other book in the entire place. And I, it creeped me out so much that I went after the funeral was over and I looked at like all the other hymnals <laughs> that were in the pews. <laughs> and not a single other one of them had this piece of paper that was sitting in my hymnal in front of me that looked as if it had been clipped out and cut for me. Now that was bizarre and I refused to believe, well, accidents are, you just built a narrative up from an accident. I'm like, mm-hmm. nope, yeah. nope, nope, sorry. That's that's I get off the train there, you know, as Andy Terrell used to say, uh, you know, like at a certain point, when do coincidences you know, happen enough that they stop being coincidences? And that that I find that very inspiring, frankly, I find that very not I don't find it, you know, weird. I find it awesome. I find it, you know, a sort of a spectacularly powerful thing. So, wow, that's a lot deeper than I meant to go, guys. Sorry. I, I don't know what it was. You know, but, <laughs> and it yeah. all started with Retron 5. But no, um, but yeah, you know. I don't the know. Retron Five, going back in time and communicating with yourself from thirty years ago. That's it. Yeah. Now that's it. The real signal rest. I don't know how much you're playing it these days, but if you look at your first card and you know what the second card is going to be, yeah, that's that, that's, that's always that's fun. the activator. That you know <laughs> that happened to me six times last last turn yesterday last tournament. Where you knew it was, but that's sort of limited odds, right? Because I mean. You know what the sort of the probability well, yeah, are, right? I mean, no, but there's yeah, a there's a knowing and then there's a knowing, and, and 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 that's what and that's what the and that's what the teasing out requires is that like there's the knowing and then there's the like oh I know because there's like lots of noise and speculative and like oh I hope it's this or whatever but then there's the like oh I know and then you get this like kind of jolty feeling of like oh i've seen this all before which feels very much like 
deja vu. I mean, it's it's basically, as near as I can tell, getting this edge in poker and maybe in all of these activities is just being able to actually harness deja vu instead of it being something that just sort of tilts you off your axis. Because, like, it is a real phenomenon. I mean, there is no, like, language, culture, or group that doesn't have a way of describing this experience. And everyone feels it repeatedly in their lives, like, all the time. So that may be a mass hallucination that we're all going through for absolutely no reason, or it may be a phenomenon that we don't fully understand. It's it's a computer uh, I, reboot, no, I suppose. I know what I'm likely to pick. That's true. I mean, it could be, right? Like, we could be in a simulation, and the, gaining that self-awareness, that could be the conduit. I don't know. Um, physiologically speaking, um, what it's supposed to be, and this is my understanding of it, is uh, when I play yeah. poker, and I'll feel a little bit funny, and I'll know that information is about to come, that unusual right. kind of information. Um, and the, the, the way to describe the feeling is like, I think your body like actually heats up a little bit and you feel mm -hmm. like some excess kind of energy. And I think what that is physiologically is it's your pineal gland activating in your brain, which is literally a little spinny thing that because it exists in the middle of your brain, um, theoretically speaking, it can um, transverse space and time and your thoughts with it, even though the rest of your body, you know, maintains where it is. Whoa, whoa, um, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. What is this spinny thing in the middle of my brain the, that allows the, me to, to become a time bandit? What is this now? It's the pineal gland. It's the, the pineal gland is a spinny thing in yeah, my brain? It's the. It's also uh, what, you know, the, uh, the Vedantists refer to as the third eye, which is why they put right. that red dot in the middle of their head, because they're marking the spot where the pineal gland is in your brain. What do you mean spinny thing? Oh gosh, let's see if Wikipedia has. Uh, it's probably a formation. Right? All of a sudden, it just rotates. That's what comes to my, my mind. Is it's the quark? Is it like? Is it like a? Is it like a? You know, like a room fan? Like what are we talking about? When we say spinning thing. Well, it's in. I think it's actually third eye. Third eye. Yes. Third eye. I, th I think it's actually encapsulated in like a little chamber of fluid inside of your own brain, and so it actually like activates and starts moving around in this little isolated chamber inside what? of your brain. This is awesome. Why did I not know about this? Uh, oh God, it's located in the epithalamus near the center of the brain, tucked in a groove where the two halves of the thalamus join. Uh, ba -ba 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 -ba. It's the compared to the photoreceptive third parental eye present in the epithalamus of some species. I think probably Wikipedia is not <laughs> referred to by mep reporters as for. spinny thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Wikipedia article is generating itself as Russ watches it. <laughs> so, and Russ is like, hey guys, I feel my spinny thing going. Here's the Wikipedia article. And then suddenly locusts appear. So wait, so this thing allows you to access time and space? Oh, here's the article that I was looking for. The pineal gland, a stargate to time travel. Excellent. Where is this found? <laughs> Where is this article found? IN5D.com. I'm sure you can just Google the phrase. Certainly, IN5D.com is one of the finest research sites. The pineal gland is a hyperdimensional stargate built into human physiology, which enables us to time travel. This technology was reverse engineered by the ancient Atlantean society. This, and Rump, it also shot Kennedy. himself, obviously, at a hand in this, of course. The yes. stargate functions by use of ordinary water, H2O, when shielded off from all the electromagnetic references to our existing third-dimensional time-space. The water can shift and have a connection made of an inverted reality of time-space. When time-space has been entered, there's access to one dimension of space and ability of movement through time. 
Doesn't that make sense? There you go. When fired I up, I perceive that of- there are all these people in our audience who were listening intently, who were on pin drop, who by the time that Greg was in the first pew were were really ready to bite and willing to go there with us, and they're all switching off and being yep. like, "What have I been doing with the last hour of my life?" <laughs> Uh, took you one step too far. You don't believe uh, in Stargate pineal gland inside your brain. That's fine. I'll just click away from this tab for now. Esoteric <laughs> for now. Esoteric <laughs> metaphysical spiritual database. How to avoid negative harvesting and reincarnation. How to, what to do if you're finished with this third dimensional experience. How to defend yourself against... Tell them when to send the money next week. Next yes. week. Yes. Send the money. How to defend yourself against astral energies. Uh, what is Project Bluebeam? It's a four-step process that oh, ends in a one-world government. Don't ask about Project Bluebeam, Greg. That's Pyramid, of, <laughs> Pyramid of Death, who really runs the world. Um, the Ascension Cycle Timeline. The Top Ten Most Mysterious Secret Societies. Most secret mis- uh, societies are actually very self-evident. They're not mysterious at all. They're right, that's right. And also, what does it really mean to ascend to the fifth dimension? And when you click on it, you go, When the moon is in the seventh house... <laughs> This is the dawning of the... Um, wow. So this is definitely a reliable source for us. I am completely hey. convinced by it. I'm just saying. Scientific I was so excited when you said I could access science. time because of a spinny thing in my head. And the next thing I know, it's just like, how do you ascend to the fifth level? You're like, oh, God. Craig, you can. You just... <laughs> if I just concentrate really cult. hard. It's yes. very easy. You yes. are the greatest obstacle to you ascending to the fifth. I am. I am. It's true. If I just believed in my spinny thing. <laughs> come on, spinny thing. Do you have the problem is, Russ, that you're always very convincing with these things. And then I always <laughs> find out that there's like some detail left out, like the fact that it comes from some bizarre combination of G. Gordon Liddy and, you know, an insane person. No, that's also I mean, that's the key to being a successful improviser is, you know, that things are going to come out of your mouth that are completely inaccurate, but you have to <laughs> say them confidently and have like a very logical string of statements on the way to your crazy statements. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, go, oh, yeah, well, the well, the ancient yeah, Egyptians also a lot about what debate was about. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> it was there about logical of- points of view. It's very true. I actually remember debating around once where uh, I was being, they were talking about jury nullification, not the most interesting subject in the world. And I was asked, and it was actually against um, Beth and, uh, oh gosh, from Yale. Beth O'Connor and... Adam. Adam, Adam, yes. Uh, And I was debating in front of Eric, uh, not Eric Benson, from uh, Stanford. Um, Yeah, Eric Benson. I guess there were two Eric Bensons. There was Eric... It wasn't that Eric Benson, though. I, I don't know. Anyway, it was some guy from Stanford. I don't remember who it was. I don't think sure. it was Eric Benson. Anyway, um, but they and I got asked a question. Adam asked me this question about something and um, about jury nullification, and I did not understand it. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand what he was talking about. I wasn't really 100% sure we were what we were talking about with jury nullification either. And so I made some silly argument that dealt with the logic of juries and justice and something. I don't remember. And I came out of it and we won the round and I got like a 27 or something. And he was like, and the judge was like, it was fascinating to see this truly innovative approach towards answering. I'm like, it's the innovative approach known as I have no idea what the hell you just asked me. (laughs) So I am now going to pretend I know something by mentioning many things about juries. Like juries are, they rhyme with things like furries. And also another thing about juries is there are people on them and they make up a jury. And 
I felt completely <laughs> out to sea. And he was like, this is a tremendous response. I'm like, great. And so I felt like at that point I was channeling my spinny thing, yes. pineal glands. It was somehow. your pineal gland that gave you the power <laughs> to, to make join time and space together. Statements. Yes. That's yeah. true. Because you were getting messages from this podcast. About <laughs> this is going to make a funny joke in 2015. Yeah, right, exactly. I yeah. jumped ahead 16 years of my life. Uh, yes, it's true. It's true. And also true, uh, guys. Now, what, remember, before you go to bed tonight, you have to powerfully send the message back. Yes, I will do that, actually. Um, and I want, and actually, yeah. not just us, but all of our listeners, we would like it if you all send the message. If we all send the message together at the same time, perhaps we can create a little bit more lightness on the planet. So we would like you all to do this. And uh, we're all going to do it tonight at, um, by the time you hear this, You'll all be somehow hearing at the same time. So at 11 p.m. your time tonight, everyone at the exact same time, even though we're all in different time zones, will all have the same exact experience. So um, just make sure you do that. And it will be that we transform into a locust. Each and, and every one of us. One large locust. Yeah. One massive one locust. Huge <laughs> Which locust. Goes, buzz, uh, <laughs> uh, Calling <laughs> out to the grasshoppers of the time before. <laughs> Don't oh, become like us, grasshoppers. With that and Jiminy Cricket. If you like what you guys heard, please make sure to uh, check out uh, the show, uh, previous shows. Please let us know. Uh, give us some feedback at mapreport.com. And thank you all, as always, for listening. We'll catch you all next time. Say goodbye, everybody. Told you. 140. It's a big one. Important. <laughs> Well, the last time I saw old man he knew him better did da da da. He was chasing a female he knew him better did da da da. As he shot past, I heard him say, "She can't fly, but I'm telling you, she could run the pits of a kangaroo." But I don't She can't fly, but I'm telling you, she could run the pits of a kangaroo. Well, there is a moral to this ditty, um, ba da 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 Frost can sing, but he ain't pretty, um, ba da 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 Duck can swim, but he can't sing, nor can the eagle on the wing. He knew can't fly, but I'm telling you, he can round the pits of the kangaroo. Well, the cook a bar laughed and he said, it's true, um, ba da 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 